global market demand for LNG and the United States' ability to build these facilities and supply the LNG really says the U.S. has become the producer of choice and the U.S. will become the largest LNG exporter globally. This is Energy Cast, and I'm Jay Downhower. Today we're talking about bringing LNG terminals online. The fracking era is barely 15 years old. I remember as late as 2009 seeing presentations discussing how finite the domestic supply of natural gas is. Fracking was a game changer. Since the late 2000s, proven reserves for oil and gas have more than doubled. And when it comes to natural gas, whose price is not set by OPEC, the benefits of shipping affordable natural gas overseas has led to a boom in the development of liquefied natural gas export terminals. The number fluctuates, but at the time of this recording, there are about 12 American export terminals approved for construction on top of the seven that are currently operating. Almost all of these are found along the Gulf Coast. My guess is developing two of them. This is probably the biggest sea change in the history of the gas industry. It also firmly establishes the United States as the world's dominant LNG exporter. The biggest question I had for my guest was, is this it? Have all the good spots along the Gulf Coast been taken? And if you haven't announced a project by 2023, are you too late? I was also curious about the business of exporting LNG. Turns out the price of domestic natural gas plays far less of a role than I'd imagined. And that's probably for the best. One of the scenarios I brought up was what if Southeast Asia started fracking operations? It turns out gas prices and good real estate are just a few of the LNG logistics developers like these are facing. My guest today is Brendan Duvall, founder and CEO of Glenfarm Group, an energy developer, owner, and operator based in New York. Glenfarm has energy projects on four continents. In late 2022, they formed Glenfarm Energy Transition, focusing on renewables, grid stability, and LNG. Glenn Farn's two LNG projects are Magnolia LNG near Lake Charles, Louisiana, and Texas LNG at the Port of Brownsville. Magnolia is the larger of the two and will be broken into two phases, or marketing packages, as they call it. This is only my second LNG episode. These guests are probably the toughest to get, and I really appreciate having a guest like Brendan who can clearly explain some of the more complicated parts of the LNG development process. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Brendan Duval. We're here with Brendan Duval, CEO and founder of Glenfarm Group. And Brendan, Glenfarm has a wide range of assets ranging from renewables to conventional power plants. I'd like to focus on your recent liquefied natural gas announcement because I find it so hard to get LNG guests on this program. So why is Glenfarm now going after LNG? Thanks for having me, Jay. I think for us, LNG is an extension of our broader business. We're in the broader energy transition business. We see that broken into three tips of the energy transition triangle, renewable energy, highly flexible power plants, and flexible fuels. So LNG for us is a flexible fuel, and we initially started developing LNG export facilities to support our gas-to-power development business that is focused on high-growth emerging markets. And over time, as we 
developed those projects, we had this event called the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and suddenly we realised we had LNG facilities that were available to help wean Europe off Russian gas. And for that reason, we're now publicly out there getting very close to an FID on our first project. What's an FID? So final investment decision, and that's typically when a project has all its revenue contracts, construction contracts, gas supply contracts, debt financing and equity financing in place, ready to move forward as a fully sanctioned project. Thank you for that. Brendan, was this originally developed by Glen Farm? Was it developed by a third party and then you purchase it for construction? How involved was Glen Farm in this whole process? We picked up Texas LNG before it had its FERC approval. We started working with some developers. We stepped into the shoes of existing investors, took over that investor's position, and then took it through the FERC approval process, the EPC development process, the contracting of the gas pipeline, the commercialization. So we've done everything from the stage after the FERC permit was initially submitted for consideration from that point on. We've handled all of that internally. The Magnolia project we bought from a publicly traded company, LNG Limited, and it was heavily developed at the time we bought it. And our main focus for it is the commercialization of it. It's commercialization installed, and we're using that as a follow-on from the demand that we garnered for the Texas LNG project. We'll then be bringing that excess demand to Magnolia in two phases, each 4.4 million tons of capacity. So effectively, we've got three LNG marketing packages, Texas LNG at 4 million tons, Magnolia phase one at 4.4, and Magnolia phase two at 4.4 million tons. For most of these LNG facilities that come online, are there big financial groups like you that take it from the inception? Do you usually pick it up at the point where you've gotten a lot of it developed? What's usually the path to building an LNG (laughs) export terminal? Globally, LNG export terminals have been developed by oil and gas majors, international players. Over time, we saw, given the access to capital markets, the technical expertise and the political stability on the U.S. Gulf Coast, we saw what I would say is the first round of what I'd call independent development of LNG export. And to some extent, Chenier started, although they were a company and they had an import terminal to start from. And then we moved over to seeing Venture Global, which was an independent developer, started by some founders. Freeport, independent developer, started by some founders. And so we have seen LNG development in the United States follow a similar model to power plant development. Back in the old days, in the 60s, 70s, power plants were developed by major utilities. And over time, the engineering, the financing, and the operations of those power plants became sufficiently transparent that independent developers became more nimble and commercially more flexible than the big utilities. And we've seen LNG facilities following a similar route. And that resulted in our attraction to that particular development model. And we're finding a lot of success as an independent developer. Right. I don't think there's many super majors that are developing LNG terminals at this point, right? Remember, you've got to separate the Gulf Coast from other parts of the world, right? So the bulk of LNG terminals globally have been developed by super majors. And I think what you're finding now is the dynamic nature of the independent developer or a more specialized developer has seen some of the super majors come in as equity investors, or they've seen the asset light version where they effectively take economically a stake in it by being a 20-year contract counterparty to buy the liquefied natural gas. 
Yeah, this is all very interesting. So I've looked at the FERC list of existing and proposed import and export terminals here in the United States. There's a lot to digest here. What's very clear is that there's currently only one terminal that can import and seven that can export. And there are another 11 export terminals either under construction, approved to be converted from import or expanded. I think that tells the story, Brendan. Well, really, we don't see more import terminals into the U.S. because the U.S. is clearly a net exporter of gas, and the U.S. has an abundance of low-cost gas and really flexible contracts. So what it's saying is the global market demand for LNG and the United States' ability to build these facilities and supply the LNG really says the U.S. has become the producer of choice. And by the time these facilities are built, even if we don't build all of the permitted ones, the U.S. will become the largest LNG exporter globally. Right. And the only LNG import facility is Everett in Boston. My guess is that is regional logistics, right? Is that importing from the United States from somewhere else or is that coming from overseas? You have one complication with importing into Boston. You may be familiar with the Jones Act, which complicates U.S. LNG and ending up in Boston. But yes, it comes in via boat and then it's put into storage there. It's basically looking at the seasonal swing when it's very hard to get all of the gaseous form of natural gas into the New England area. LNG in a compressed and liquefied form provides a strategic reserve to be released when the pipelines over capacity bringing the gas in, particularly on very cold winters days. Jones Act because there's still no U.S. flagged LNG ships? For intercoastal transport like that, there's really not a focus on that at the moment. So the ships are flagged in different countries. And strange that sounds, it's easier to bring a foreign-built ship into Boston than a U.S.-built ship if it doesn't have the U.S. flag. Right. Brendan, I did a refining episode. We talked about Jones Act. We also talked about Jones Act on an episode I did on offshore wind. There's no Jones Act vehicles that can install an offshore wind turbine currently in the United States. Yeah, it's a complicated fact of history. And it's one of those things where we've got bigger fish to fry than take on the whole of Jones Act for our business, given it's such a small component of global LNG. Right. You mentioned Chenier Energy. I discussed Chenier way back in an episode on a book that was written about the early days of natural gas fracking. The book was called The Frackers, and Chenier was part of that. I think they originally were going to import, then they were going to export. They have the largest export terminal, from what I understand. It's 4.5 billion cubic feet per day, BCFD. Your two facilities are 1.2 and 0.055. Does size matter? (laughs) So for us, ultimately, it comes down to offering a compelling contract structure because we have to go to our customers, clients, which are typically in Europe and or in Asia, and offer them a 15 or 20 year, I'd say, product, right? And that product has very components in it. Do they want us to deliver into their port in Europe or Asia, or do they just want us to deliver into their boat that is pulled up against our terminal? Do they want to buy on a European index? Do they want to buy? an oil like a Brent index or do they want to buy an Henry Hub index? And when you look at all of those and you take into account our ability to provide that service, you can offer them a product that they need and you're a solution provider. Now, there is a component where you would argue scale and the size of your facility would lower your cost of construction per production unit. We haven't seen that. 
actually, we've actually seen for Texas LNG a little bit of the opposite, where there is some benefits to smaller scale and smaller facilities that don't require so many contracts to get financed, don't take up such a huge volume of a local workforce, and don't require an oversized level of construction and construction risk. And from our standpoint, because we know and the negotiations we're doing with our customers, we've got a very compelling story at a very compelling price that is competing with the larger facilities. That's for sure. These single facilities can have multiple what we call trains, right? The trains are where they're liquefying the gas. So do the trains vary a lot inside or just basically if you're going to have a large export terminal, you just have a lot of trains side by side? They are modular now, but the traditional original ways, these facilities were built in a method that's known as stick build, where a whole lot of workers would come on site. They bring their welders, they bring their metal, and a lot of it would be built on site. Now these modules are built in shipyards, particularly in Asia, in very organized and tight operating parameters, and that can save money and create a precision work environment. And then they float it over, often through the canal and then up onto the Gulf Coast. There are larger size trains that are still modular and smaller trains that are also modular. And typically a smaller train would be, and often in LNG we think of million tons. So a two million ton train is on the smaller end and a five million ton train is on the larger end. But both of them can be manufactured in a modular basis and then floated in. The benefit of the two million ton train are those modules can be put on more regular ocean carriers and the five million ton trains need a slightly more less available ocean carrier to float them in. But again, both are modular One's just roughly two and a half times the size of the trains we're building. In each of our facilities, we've got two 2.2 million ton trains. There are four of them over in Magnolia and two of them over in Texas LNG. How long does it take to build an export terminal and does this new modular design help expedite that once the shovel hits the dirt? (laughs) These projects are very complex, right? That's why we've worked with global construction companies. So, for example, our Texas LNG is a joint venture between Technip out of Paris and Samsung Engineering out of Seoul, Korea, and they have a construction arrangement with us where they'll take it through construction. Now, when they look at it, they know that from what I call hardcore construction start to hardcore construction end, that can be as tight as 36 months. If you go for the longer period of when we release them to wrap up the rest of their engineering and commissioning is complete, that can be between 42 and 48 months. And then importantly, often gets commingled in the way it's described, the development period pre-construction can be as long as five to 10 years. So it's very important that we separate out those three different pieces of the timeline, but we've got skills across all of those And ultimately, the modularization is a good way to create more certainty about the timing. And that does decrease the amount of time you have to put in for buffer and contingency, which then reduces the amount of financing that's needed. So, yes, the modularization has resulted in a faster portion of the hardcore construction. But you still can't take away from the time you issue what's called notice to proceed to your final commissioning test. That can be as long as 42 to 48 months. 
Right. There's been a lot of talk about modularization in the nuclear industry as well. These are extremely complicated, large energy projects. And so these two terminals, Texas LNG is in the port of Brownsville. Magnolia LNG is near Lake Charles, Louisiana. I'm curious if there's a shortage of real estate left to build facilities like this. You're building in popular ship channels, some of the most popular probably in the entire Gulf Coast. Are the facilities under consideration right now, you know, being permitted? You're one of them. Is this really the last time to get in on the LNG export business in the Gulf Coast? I can't imagine there's much more real estate next to these large ports. Well, I'd say it is more about the ideal locations, right? So what's an ideal location for an LNG facility? And you can look at deep draft ports, ports that are not overly congested. You're better to be in a port that's close to the Gulf Coast if possible. You want to have a port that has certain hurricane response capabilities. And then you have to overlay the demand for the facility. At the moment, the volume of new long-term offtake being signed and the volume of projects that are permitted, there is probably the right amount of permitted projects and demand as they can be financed in sequence. So I wouldn't see it as a shortage of real estate. I'd more talk about it as, yes, the ideal locations get picked up first. We think Texas LNG is an amazing location. Why is it so special? It's one hour up the ship channel. It's at the front of the ship channel. It's in an area that has a very different hurricane pattern to, say, Lake Charles. And so, for example, that's a good location. Are there other locations on the Gulf Coast? Yep. But you're always trying to go in any new industry to the lowest cost of construction and the optimal locations are the lowest cost. So I do think a lot of the optimal locations are taken. The barriers to entry are more about the complexity of building, permitting, pipeline access and commercialization. And probably the actual physical location is only a component of that barrier to entry. These are probably the two most popular locations for LNG, are they not? Clearly Lake Charles is the most popular. You look at the amount of permitted tons there, and it's popular for the abundance of pipelines that come in down from Louisiana. Brownsville, there were three permitted projects there. There was ours, there was the next decade one, and there was a third project that ended up withdrawing its FERC permit due to commercialization problems, not the location. Yeah, Brownsville is popular. It's a bit of a race to see who starts construction first there, but it's another excellent location. You've got the projects in Corpus Christi. So there are a sort of a finite number of locations where you see them focused. And that's that's due to, as you point out, there are only so many optimal locations. But even in an optimal location, there's room for expansion. A lot of these are built together. And so I'm curious, do you gain efficiencies by clustering and possibly even working with some of these? You'd see them as competitors, but you could probably see some synergy there. Is that being discussed? How does that work? I think it's important as an industry, we work together, the CEOs and board members and the C-suite of the projects to ensure we're putting the industry in a positive light because there is, in my opinion, a lot of miseducation on what LNG is doing for the world. And for those of us in the business, we're very proud of what we're doing for the energy transition. There is another area of cooperation and coordination, which is during force majeure events like hurricanes and who can swap cargoes and who can coordinate as various components of the LNG facility shut down in preparation for a force majeure event. But typically, each facility does have its own storage tanks, its own liquefaction. We do pull from the same interstate or interstate trunk lines for gas, but that's more us individually working with the large interstate pipelines as opposed to kind of buying as a group. 
There is also some level of coordination for what I'd call drives into Europe and into Asia, where as an industry we work together. But there's not as much physical efficiencies of scale working with different facilities because everyone has their own contracts, their own client needs, and it's quite hard to actually join any of the facilities together. I understand. I've covered this in the past. Oil and gas prices are notoriously finicky. I was in the fracking sector from 2011 to 2017. I saw two boom and bust cycles. How do you finance something like that where oil prices do rise and fall over the course of a large project like this? Right. We're more infrastructure investors here at Glen Farn, and typically the LNG facility owners are also infrastructure investors. And those of us in the infrastructure investment, we focus on the most efficient way to finance an asset that has a 40-year life cycle. We are very much focused on how do we insulate between commodity prices and infrastructure investment. And there are players out there that are specialized in the commodity side of this, which is often traders, the end market buyer and or producers, and then players like us that are focused on highly efficient, low-cost, low-risk investment. What we do is we enter into 15 or 20-year contracts with clients offshore in Asia or in Europe or in South America. We enter into 15 and 20-year gas supply agreements, and then we enter into financing arrangements that actually finance against that long-term cash flow and that long-term contract structure, and that's a debt and equity financing. So in general, while there is some level of risk around the commodity and the commodity price, it really, on any day-to-day basis, a well-structured LNG project is broadly insulated from that because the volatility part is contracted away either to a producer or an end market buyer that is naturally positioned to handle that risk. The reason the economics work so well for LNG exports, my understanding is, is it's not like a set price with oil. Right. You've got some very good arbitrage opportunities between, say, the United States and Asia. Do we believe this is going to continue to be a sustainable model over the next couple of decades? I mean, what if they decided to start fracking in Asia, for instance, and the price of natural gas went way down over there? You need to look at it in terms of project-by-project rollout. When we close the financing on our project, we'll have a 20-year contract. There's an infrastructure component called a liquefaction fee, and that is totally independent on the commodity price. And then typically, there is a commodity piece of it, which is, in general, a pass-through. Once we sign a 20-year contract, our revenues are locked in with a little bit of inflation pass-through called part of our revenues for the next 20 years, and our debt amortizes and our equity pays back over that period of time. So our project will be safe, secure, with a nice return profile. Let's say in five years from now, there is some amazing gas discovery in another part of the world that's huge and abundant. Yes, that may attract new LNG facilities be built over there, but the facilities in the U.S. generally, because the U.S. is very efficient in the way it puts its capital together, most of the projects in the U.S. have got long-term finance plans linked to their long-term revenue line. They'll be paid back fully amortized by the time they have to recontract. And at recontracting, maybe there's a shift where the LNG is being exported from, but at least the projects we're closing on right now and our brethren that are closing their contracts in general will be insulated from that until the contracts require renewal in 20 years. That's interesting. And this is such a humongous infrastructure investment. You said you're doing the contracts for 20 years, but I would imagine the facility could last a lot longer than 20 years. I would assume the infrastructure would be good till the end of the century. 
Like we see in a lot of energy infrastructure, there's sort of three phases to it. The initial investment period, which typically for much of the energy world, whether it's power plants or pipelines or liquefaction facilities, the initial economic period is 20 to 30 years. Then there is an original design life, which could be 30 to 50 years. And then there's what we describe as excess of design life, which is you look at facilities that have exceeded their design life and with ongoing maintenance, and engineering and capex and new operating parameters, the useful life can extend well beyond the original design. And we see that with gas plants and other similar but different infrastructure throughout the world where it goes on for a long time. But I would say the typical life of an LNG facility when you analyze the sensitivities between 20 and 40 years. Brendan, I want to wrap up and talk about the environmental impacts, and I think that's getting more and more important as we go on. It was reported that the Magnolia Project will use something called Optimized Single Mixed Refrigerant, or OSMR, liquefaction technology. We discussed how natural gas has to be cooled to be liquefied back in Episode 44 of Energy Cast. How is this process going to make LNG more energy efficient? Really, there's two steps in the way natural gas goes down to being a liquid. There's a pre-cooling and then a liquefaction process. So the mixed refrigerant component of it is pretty similar. Once you pre-cool it, you're using a mixed refrigerant to bring it down to a liquefied form. The pre-cooling, though, you can use a number of different refrigerants. Typically, propane has been used. In OSMR, we use ammonia. And ammonia in that section of the process itself is 20% more efficient than propane. And we often get asked the question, why do others use propane and our process use ammonia? It just happens that ammonia is abundant on the Gulf Coast. It's safe. It's clean. It's just more energy efficient. So why not get the best refrigerant available? It just happens to be 20% more efficient. OSMR also has a second component to it, which is when we bring down and we go through that cooling process, we're using the waste heat from our turbines. Therefore, that is also more efficient. So in general, we see OSMR being about 25 to 30% more efficient than a typical propane-driven liquefaction process. All right, Brendan, I'm going to finish with a lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies, starting with natural gas. Long-term energy transition. Crude oil. Over time, being phased out, but still here for a long time. Nuclear. Fantastic way to reduce carbon. Coal, and I'll add coal with carbon capture. Coal with carbon capture is very expensive, but it's still an emerging technology. Wind. Excellent renewable source. We should have more of it and more offshore wind. Solar. Super low cost, easy to install, abundant. We continue to invest in solar. Biofuels. Excellent way to use existing infrastructure. Very hard to finance and own in many circumstances. Hydroelectric. Very little development happening these days, but probably the best long-term investment opportunity out there if you can find one. Geothermal. Hard to develop, and it does expire, but it's good for the carbon reduction. Energy storage. Broad term, batteries is one component. I'm very excited about learning about non-battery energy storage. Energy efficiency. We've all got to do it from our kids to our grandmas. It's just part of our commitment to the environment. And then finally, fusion power. Beyond the scope of my engineering background, I'm an electrical engineer, but uh, I was very excited to hear the press this week on what the Department of Defense announced. All right. Brendan Duvall, Glen Farm Group, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Jay. We'll talk soon.
That was Brendan Duvall, founder and CEO of Glenfarn Group, a global energy developer. Today's episode focused on the two LNG projects, but don't sleep on the fact that Glenfarn Energy Transition also includes 27 renewable energy assets and 12 power plants for the grid stability end of their mission. I want to thank Brendan for his time. You can find plenty of pictures for this episode on energy-cast.com, as well as on Instagram at Host Energy and Twitter at Host Energy Cast. All guests are sent the raw and completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 157. Be sure to join us next week when we meet the lead behind that historic fusion power announcement. You won't want to miss it. Until then, I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time. <laughs>